0: the Guardian
1: turning to some tech news now Google's AI subsidiary DeepMind has unveiled its latest version of its go playing software AlphaGo Zero in October 2017 researchers at Google DeepMind published a paper in the journal Nature on an AI program called AlphaGo Zero more importantly AlphaGo Zero did not analyze any human moves of the past and completely taught itself with a blank Go board and no data apart from the rules. Unlike previous incarnations of the program, this updated version mastered the game of Go through self-play alone. It was told the rules, but no information from human games was used to train it. Specifically, it defeated the version of AlphaGo that won against the world champion Lee Sedol, and it beat that version of AlphaGo by 100 games to zero. The program worked very well. Pitted against its AlphaGo predecessor, which famously defeated the world champion Lee Sedol, AlphaGo Zero won 100 games to nothing. AlphaGo Zero doesn't use any human data whatsoever. Talking about the achievement, lead researcher David Silver explained that AlphaGo Zero had not only discovered traditional human moves, but also invented, and I quote, its own variants which humans don't even know about or play at the moment. It's here that a new and exciting use for artificial intelligence comes to light. Could it be that AI might teach us about the world around us? And if so, will humans still be needed in science and other intellectual endeavours? We'll find out in this third episode of our Questioning AI mini-series when we ask What might scientists learn from artificial intelligence?
2: We and others have done that, and this actually seems to be able to allow us to understand, uh, not completely yet, but uh, to a pretty good extent, how the first stages of visual information processing work. And we've been stepping on top of these shoulders
3: and, and trying to build representation of these stained cancer slices and try to actually predict you know whether a patient has cancer or not
0: then we could certainly apply all of the methods that we currently use and the ones that we will develop in the future whether they're based on machine learning or not to investigate some of those bigger questions about what our universe is made of
1: i'm ian sample this is Questioning AI. Before we get into some specific examples of how machine learning is being used in the world of science, I wanted to get a grounding in why AI might be attractive to scientists in the first place.
3: We are in the time when more and more data exists, more and more is measured. Okay, my name is Klaus Robert Müller. I'm a, a professor at a Technical University for machine learning. There is a need for people making sense of that data. This is for industry and also for the sciences. And machine learning is this discipline. With machine learning, we've been able to create models that are highly predictive, but also that allow to gain insights on the respective domain that we apply it to.
1: Give me a sense of what impact machine learning is having on science. Where is it being used? How is it being used? Well, I mean, first of all, machine learning
3: is being used in the industry a lot. It's in part of our daily lives. But in the sciences, most of the time we use machine learning so far to predict things, to analyze high dimensional data and to model that data.
1: Machine learning, the driving force behind much modern AI, clearly has the potential to transform many fields of science. One area that Klaus is keen to improve with the technology is cancer diagnosis. And the reason for this
3: is quite personal, um, because um, a very close relative of mine, he deceased from cancer, and um, before that time I actually worked a lot on, with machine learning in the neurosciences. And I, I decided to actually start also looking at cancer in order, you know, in a very childish way to take revenge that is very personal.
1: And what are you doing exactly?
3: Well, you know, nowadays, um, and, and this is a very recent development over the last um, less than 10 years, there's very high quality uh, cancer data around These are, on one side, um, pathological slices, but also molecular data. And um, we've been studying this and trying to get modern machine learning to look at this kind of data and to help diagnosing. So
1: how would this work in practice?
3: So in, in industrial practice, there's a huge computer vision literature. So people, you know, have tasks like recognizing cats and dogs and buses and all these things. So in principle, you know, these are very specific and spectacularly good working algorithms. And we've been stepping on top of these shoulders and and trying to build representation of these stained cancer slices and try to actually predict you know, whether a patient has cancer or not. And the interesting thing about this is that in another line of research, we've been always trying to make sense of why or what a particular um, learning machine is actually doing when it makes a prediction. So because these learning machines are highly nonlinear, and people often think of them as black boxes. And we, we are actually uh, have been doing a lot of research trying to make these black boxes transparent. This is particularly important in the medical domain because imagine the situation where you diagnose. So then, then what the, the MD does is puts an image of the pathological slice on his screen, and then looks whether there's cancerous tissue and then diagnoses this. And And for example, our model would also give a diagnosis, say, yeah, this is cancer with a certain probability. But then of course, you know, the the MD who's in charge and who has to take the responsibility would have to say, well, you know, why is the model saying that in the moment? And, and we are basically able to move backwards the decision-making process into the input domain and basically color these slices in the way that the the responsible parts for the decision-making they are you know you know more colorful than the others so in other words there's a heat map that shows for example the cancerous cells and the this heat map shows in fact what the learning machine thinks about this problem. Let's give another example. So if I go back to this classification of cats and dogs, so assume that you have a picture where there's a bunch of cats in the picture, then sure enough, a good uh, computer vision system would classify this as a picture with cats. And then you can ask the computer vision system, so what, What about it? Why do you think this is a cat? And of course you don't ask this in the way I ask it, but but you you know, you go mathematically through this very complex deep neural network and then you get some heat spots that sit right on top of the cats that are seen in this image because that's why the network thinks that these are cats, if of course the network has learned this properly.
1: So if I understand it right, with cancer, what you're saying is that the algorithm is trained on a lot of data, a lot of um biopsies and imagery from patients who have and don't have breast cancer, and it learns patterns that say, yes, this is cancer or no, this is not. And then what you can do when this is making a decision on new um biopsies and new images is you can work through the algorithm and say how are you reaching this decision and you can work out which bits of the data that it's looking at are most important in reaching that decision is that right
3: that's exactly right so you in, essentially you will get the cancer cells highlighted in some cancer types but sometimes it's it's rather the tissue between the cancer cells or the cells that is infiltrated by the tumour so it depends on the particular case and then the particular cancer what is being shown.
1: The capability of a machine learning system to explain itself to a human is something that will become increasingly important as AI systems help us advance our understanding of the world. Hello,
2: Hello I'm, I'm Tommaso Poggio. Hi, it's Tommaso
1: something Tommaso. we'll touch on a little later. Before then, though, I wanted to explore where else AI might be chipping in to help scientists in their work.
2: No, I'm not. Okay, yeah. Uh, re- this is Tommaso Poggio. Uh, I'm the McDermott Professor at MIT in the Department of brain sciences and in the computer science and artificial intelligence lab and I'm also the director of an NSF-funded cent- centre called the Centre for Brains, Minds and Machines.
1: And it's this intersection between brains, minds and machines that Tommaso focuses much of his attention on, and specifically tried to crack the ever-elusive problem of intelligence. You know,
2: understanding the mind has been... I think a uh, preoccupation of philosophers for thousands of years and in the last uh, 50 years has become a preoccupation of scientists as well. And so in just 50 years you have, we have made a lot of progress. I think it's still a long way to go. Uh, I think there is uh, hype around the problem, to be pure arrogance to think that we can solve such a problem which i personally think is the greatest problem in science today the problem of intelligence the problem of the mind i think it would be very arrogant to think we can solve it in just i don't know 10 years or 20 or so it will take longer we'll get there we'll make a lot of progress in the meantime and uh, um, understand much more about our brain who may be really able to make ourselves smarter and more intelligent than any machine we build.
1: So what sort of ways are you using AI to
2: test ideas about how our own brains work? Well, let me give an example. Um, We and others developed theories, models of how vision works in visual cortex in monkeys and brain. Monkeys have a very similar visual cortex to humans. And so these models can be tested uh, by implementing them in exp- in a machine in a computer and seeing what how they work and which prediction they make about neurons in the brain and then you can test whether they perform as they should whether they these models recognize images like humans and monkeys do or not, and you can also test whether the prediction they make about specific properties of individual neurons in the monkey's brain are true or not. And we and others have done that, and this actually seems to be able to allow us to understand uh, not completely yet, but uh, to a pretty good extent how the first stages of visual information processing work. It is not commonly realized, but the main progress in artificial intelligence today, more specifically in machine learning, are two algorithms. One is called the deep learning, it's a set of algorithms, and another one is reinforcement learning. Uh, they are at the base of uh, successes like autonomous driving. Case in point is Israeli company Mobilize started by an ex postdoc of mine which has, is providing most car manufacturer with vision-based systems for helping um, autonomous or semi autonomous driving. Another one is another success is AlphaGo or AlphaZero um, systems developed by DeepMind, which was a company now part of Google, started by another postdoc of mine, Demis Service. Um, they both work, we use in their systems the vision system, the a Go system, they use reinforcement learning and deep learning. Now both these core algorithms have their origin in neuroscience, in uh, um, essentially data about the brain. Deep deep learning comes from uh, ideas back in the 60s due to Hubel and Wiesel, We, we were recording from individual cells in visual cortex of monkeys at Harvard. And reinforcement learning comes from a long tradition started with Pavlov about how conditioned reflexes work in animals like the mouse. And uh, and so it's interesting that this, you know, progress, recent amazing progress in AI has its roots in neuroscience. The name of the game at
1: airports these days is security. And while x-ray machines and metal detectors can spot most potential problems, they can't catch a plastic explosive. For a machine to determine that an object inside a suitcase is a plastic bomb, it's got to be able to do fuzzy logic that has come to a quick decision based on incomplete, conflicting or ambiguous data. Now to do that, the FAA has turned to the brain-like power of
2: neural network computers.
1: Are you still working in this area? Have you taken that research on?
2: Yes, we are still working in this area, um, trying to develop uh, models of visual cortex that are more faithful f- to how our brain works than than existing models today. Uh, in particular, one aspect of human vision, the present uh, systems don't uh, take into account is is the fact that our visual acuity decreases very rapidly with eccentricity in other words we see very sharply only a very small part of the image even if we are not very conscious of it think about going to the optometrist and you have to read the small letters you know at the bottom of the table and uh, then in order to read them you have to focus pretty carefully, otherwise you will not be able to read them. Our vision is very blurred, just one degree away or so from the center of the fovea. And uh, this has a lot of interesting implications for how vision works that are not taken into account in present models.
1: So how much do you think we can learn about the brain, about intelligence itself from AIs uh, by building these kinds of
2: models? as i said before i think um building the models is part of the typical cycle in science in which you you know you may have uh, some experimental data. Then you try to have a theory or a model to explain it. And then you have to test some prediction of the model and and then repeat this iteration, change your theory according to the experiments, and so on. So um, from this point of view, uh, implementing models on a computer, so system on a computer, is part of trying to understand how the system works. The same thing we do in physics. Now, I think that, you know, in terms if you are an engineer, you are really not interested at all in the brain. You can certainly develop systems that are different from what the brain does and may be intelligent in some way, you know, which is probably different from human, going to be different from human intelligence. I think people are uh, misled by the term intelligence. Intelligence is a very vague term. What we we understand when we use the term intelligence is really human intelligence or some uh, simple extrapolations of it, like uh, you know faster, more memory, or so. But there are many, many, many different ways for a system uh, to be intelligent.
1: The misunderstandings about intelligence is something we covered in depth in the second episode of this mini-series when we asked what kind of intelligence will we create? If you haven't had a chance to hear it yet, it's no spoiler to say that intelligence is very hard to pin down. And that's just the definition. Meaning, as Tomasso says, it would be arrogant to think that we'll crack intelligence anytime soon with or without the help of AI. But what about other areas of science? Particle physics, for example. How can AI help there? It's something we'll explore more after this short break.
0: AI already has superhuman abilities in finding particles from patterns in our data.
1: We'll also explore the limits of AI when it comes to the scientific process. So we don't
3: have zillions of data points from which we may infer something really meaningful and interesting.
1: We'll be right back. Before we kick off again, I wanted to point you in the direction of another podcast here at The Guardian. It's called Brexit Means, and as the name would suggest, attempts to finally find out what exactly Brexit does mean, apart from, of course, Brexit. So if you feel like delving into the nitty-gritty of Britain's exit from the EU, make sure to join John Henley and his experts on The Guardian's Brexit Means. To find out more, head over to theguardian.com slash podcasts or search Brexit Means on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back to Science Weekly, I'm Ian Sample. Before the break, we heard from Klaus Robert Müller about how he's using machine learning algorithms in the hope of better diagnosing and ultimately understanding cancer. Importantly, Klaus hopes to reveal the inner workings of these black box algorithms, leading to a clearer understanding of exactly how these AI systems reach their decisions. And we heard from Tomaso Poggio about what role AI might play in helping us crack intelligence.
0: Hello, Hello, can you hear me?
1: But now let's leave the macro world of humans for the micro world of particle physics. Hi,
0: good to meet you.
1: How is artificial intelligence helping us understand the fundamental building blocks of the universe?
0: So my name is Michaela Paganini and I'm a physics PhD student at Yale University and a member of the Atlas Collaboration at CERN, which is the European organization for nuclear research, which is best known for being the home of the Large Hadron Collider, And I personally work at this very exciting intersection of particle physics and machine learning.
1: I spoke to Michaela via Skype recently and started by asking her, Michaela, give us an idea of how machine learning is used in particle physics.
0: Yes, so machine learning is used in very many different ways at CERN. Um, Just to premise, in particle physics, our primary uh, research goal is to probe what we call the standard model of particle physics, which is this extremely successful And very very accurate theory that describes all of the elementary particles that we know of and uh, all of their interactions but we do have reasons to believe that it may not be a complete theory uh, so that there might be some extension to it that is needed to fully describe our universe so at CERN um, you could say that we stress test the standard model and look for signs of physics beyond the standard model so beyond what we already know so new forces of new particles Um, And machine learning can really help us with all of that.
1: Give us a sense of how, though. How does machine learning actually come into play in trying to sort of further these aims at CERN?
0: So first, we need to become uh, better and better at identifying known standard model particles. So making sure that, you know, we don't confuse electrons and photons with each other, for example. Um, So uh, using what we know from physics theory, physicists have uh, developed many non-machine learning algorithms over the years, to help us distinguish various types of particles. But more recently, machine learning has slowly replaced some of these more traditional methods, um, first because of its ability to outperform them, but then also because it often does so with a lower computational requirement. In particular, you can think of computer vision techniques that are very similar to the ones that we use in self-driving cars or cancer detection applications. And these have recently shown the most promise, I think, for particle physics. So AI already has superhuman abilities in finding particles from patterns in our data at a large Hadron collider. Um, but machine learning is used for far a lot more than particle classification, of course. So on top of that, for example, AI is used to simulate particle collisions, uh, which is something that I've personally been working on. So our goal is to speed up, otherwise very, very slow computer simulations of how particles interact with matter. Um, I use, for example, a technique called generative adversarial networks. And this can be applied to many other fields that that currently rely on very slow simulations. So you can think of weather forecasting, cosmology, for example. And then, of course, there are lots more applications to uh, monitoring the behavior or alignment of all of our detector and collider components Um, and this is done primarily to to avoid very very costly downtime but also to avoid having uh, you know hundreds of very skilled physicists spend their time just staring at monitors and these are just some of the examples
3: this is a very very preliminary result but we think it's very strong it's very solid otherwise we wouldn't present it and we slowly as we've gathered data we rediscovered the standard model to more and more rare processes and basically we're very confident now that we can go after the rarest which is the Higgs.
0: If we combine
3: the ZZ and gamma gamma, this is what we get. They, they line up extremely well and in the region of 125 GeV uh, they combine to give us a, an ex- a combined significance of five standard deviations.
1: How can you use these kinds of approaches to look for new physics for new particles or new forces in these collision data
0: we can use machine learning but not necessarily in a straightforward way um, so i would say that what makes modern ai so good is the ability to show it examples of of things that we would like it to find and then the algorithm finds them better than we ever could but the problem is that a lot of the new physics that we're looking for um, it's supposed to be extremely rare, and we don't even necessarily know for sure what it's supposed to look like. So it's hard to train machine learning algorithms to look for the unknown. And so oftentimes uh, what we do is we, we don't try to have machine learning look for new physics directly. Um, that would be more of an anomaly detection type of problem, if you wish. Um, but instead, we try to look for very well-known standard model particles, which are what the rare particles might decay into. Um, and this is a much better defined problem. So something that we can actually train our machine learning algorithms to do reliably.
1: Michaela, do you see this kind of approach being able to make progress with some of these really big questions in particle physics such as the nature of dark matter and and things like that whether there are there are obviously lots of particle candidates for dark matter
0: absolutely as you said correctly dark matter could have a particle realization so it could be some new type of exotic matter that may or may not interact with the known standard model particles If dark matter does interact with known standard model particles, it may create excesses in the rates of particles that are produced at the Large Hadron Collider, or just some deviations of some of their properties that could be affected by some correction introduced by dark matter. And if this is the case, this could be observed at the Large Hadron Collider in the form of, again, some deviations in known properties or uh, some bumps in our uh, data that is collected at the Large Hadron Collider. So, of course, if dark matter has a particle realization and if it does in some way or another interact with the particles we know, then we could certainly apply all of the methods that we currently use and the ones that we will develop in the future, whether they're based on machine learning or not, to investigate some of those bigger questions about what our universe is made of.
1: But all this gets me thinking about whether or not these AIs are doing anything more than testing our ideas. Can I ask you about this idea of using AIs to understand new science across the board? It's something I put to Klaus. I'm wondering if it could mean as AI progresses, if it could mean the end of traditional science as we know it by AIs simply finding patterns in data and flagging them up to scientists.
3: A lot of People nowadays say that maybe there's an end of traditional science because of AI. I completely disagree with this. So I, I think all the experience that I have is that, you know, for a while you can work very well with data, you can gain some understanding, whether it's in cancer or physics or other domains or neuroscience, but there's a limit of what you can get from data alone. So the challenge is really to sit together with the domain experts and to use the prior knowledge that is available in the domain and to incorporate it into the modeling. That makes a huge difference and that makes the difference between I think perhaps a bit boring research where you do something and then you get some insight but everybody knows that already to something where you really get fundamentally new insights. So I think the learning machines are in principle able to predict and to model aspects in the data, but to get really new insights. In most of the domains outside of industry, data is scarce and expensive. So we don't have zillions of data points from which we may infer something really meaningful and interesting. We have very limited data. And in this case, putting prior knowledge into the learning machine is really a game changer.
0: The ideal goal would be, of course, to develop algorithms that, if I can anthropomorphize them for a second, really think like a physicist. And what I mean by that is, is that a truly intelligent algorithm needs to take into consideration not only the pure performance gains, but also a lot of constraints that come with the scientific field of applications such as physics. So what are the systematic errors? How can we reduce them? Um, how can we maximize performance while at the same time learning not to latch onto some mismodeled properties of particles? So how can the algorithm be robust to variations in particle characteristics such as uh, its speed, etc. So these are all questions that a good physicist asks and a good AI needs to also keep in mind. So obviously this is just a speculation, but I assume that if we were able to teach AI how to not only look for accuracy improvements but also keep into consideration all of these constraints, then we could really revolutionize the way science is done.
1: So perhaps it might be a while before we learn any groundbreaking new science from an AI. What the technology will be in the near term is a useful tool, and perhaps one that will not, for at least a while, destroy traditional science as we know it. But do we need to worry about where AI is going? Will these programs get so powerful that they could wreak unintentional havoc is it crazy to think that ai needs a kill switch to keep it in line it's something we'll explore in the fourth and final episode of our questioning ai mini-series
2: but i think the development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race
1: special thanks this week to Klaus robert muller Tommaso Poggio and Michaela Paganini. If you've got any questions, queries or feedback, please get in touch by email. That's scienceweekly at theguardian.com. I'm Ian Sample. This is Science Weekly.